0: Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome back. It is Tuesday, January the 24th, 2023, and it's 7 a.m. here in Spotswood, and my goodness, if you were around here yesterday or last night, you know how cold it was, and it looks like a crisp morning outside today, but it also looks like it's going to be nice and clear Um, But it's a beautiful morning here and I hope it is where you are too. And I'm happy to be with you and to have this time and I'm grateful for the technology and um, let's pray that it keeps on working. I'm kind of gun shy after all of this stuff that we've been dealing with lately, but the last couple of times things have worked out okay again i welcome you whether this is your first time with us or maybe this is your 50th time with us or your 400th time with us i don't know i know that some of you have been here all along the way and you have no idea how appreciative i am of uh, of your participation your time your prayers um really it is an honor to be with you right now especially as we consider where we come to today now if you have been with us, you know that we are making our way through the gospel according to John. And where we find ourselves today is in chapter 19, sort of at the conclusion of Jesus' time with Pilate. Not sort of, it; I mean, it is the conclusion of Jesus' time with Pilate. What we talked about yesterday and then also Thursday was this back and forth, back and forth between Pilate and the Jews, where Jesus was brought to Pilate. The Jews legally could not crucify Jesus. They had to get the Romans to do it. Nevertheless, Jesus is brought to Pilate, the Roman governor. They have this back and forth. We find this interaction Personally, between Jesus and Pilate, we see that Jesus is very definitely in control. As we saw yesterday, uh, John 19, 8, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, right? We talked about some of the sources here. Why was Pilate afraid? Was this because of political expediency? Did he think there would be a riot and uprising? Did it have to do with Matthew twenty-seven nineteen and the dream that his wife had, and the fact that his wife very clearly said that Jesus was innocent? Um, yeah, was it because Pilate kept saying, I find no charge in this man? I think that's kind of unlikely, because I'm quite certain that Pilate had killed droves of innocent men. This was not that he was some uh, profoundly uh, frightened over a miscarriage of justice or anything like that. I mean, it— But y'all, even though we don't know specifically what it was, we know that Pilate keeps going back and forth with the Jews trying to say to them, look, uh, uh, the first interaction, this is after he had Jesus savagely beaten and flogged, right? And he brings Jesus out in the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and he says, well, here you go. In other words, it's almost like you say, this is the guy that you're worried about? I took care of it, guys. I I don't find any basis for a charge against this man. But every time Pilate did that, their return cry was, crucify him, crucify him. Then their cries became intensified. They would eventually say, if you don't do anything about this, you are no friend to Caesar, right? This is verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And then finally, after taking him back and then bringing him back again, Pilate said, "Verse fourteen: Here is your king." But they shouted, "Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him!" And then Pilate asked, "Shall I crucify your king?" "We have no king but Caesar," the chief priest answered. all there's a reason that John the Baptist came on the scene saying the axe has been laid at the root. There's a Jesus, uh, there's a reason that Jesus when he looked at Jerusalem said, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to draw you to myself. Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets, but you would not have it." There's a reason that Jesus said, I will destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. Certainly, it's the whole of his rejection, right? It's the whole of them turning away from Jesus. He came unto his own, but his own would not receive him, as we read in John chapter 1. However, there is a special poignancy on their last word. The last word that we hear from the Jews before the crucifixion, Is an honest word, but it's a horrible word. When they said, we have no king but Caesar, they meant it. And so, as we finished last time, the first part of verse 16 says, finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. That's where we left off. That's where we'll pick up. Let's pray. Our father, what an unthinkable, unbelievable. In the history of injustice, there has never been such a greater injustice than this, that the one who committed no sin, the only one of us that has ever been completely guiltless was found guilty. And as we'll see today, received the wages of sin that he didn't earn and died. And yet, though this is the most profound of injustices, in it there is justice for it is by his wounds that we are healed. It is only because of his sacrifice that we have forgiveness. And so justice is served. But father, this justice, Oh, it was so costly. As we go into today, as we focus on this part of the story, as it were, a part that I've no doubt so many of us are familiar with, let not our familiarity with this stand in the way of a fresh reading of the opportunity for new understanding and new appreciation of what our Lord endured for us. Please let us see, let us hear. Guide us by your Holy Spirit, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So the beginning of John chapter 19, verse 16, which is where we're picking up, says, Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So, where we pick up today, so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him, two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pausing very, very briefly, Simon of Cyrene, right? Maybe you've heard that name before. Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention the very same, that Jesus was sentenced to death, handed over to the soldiers to be crucified. Um, We know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus endured the pain of carrying his own cross, most likely It was the cross beam, right, and the post, right, the the upright um, would have already been in place. But Jesus carried his own cross beam, having already been nailed to it um, by his wrists, most likely. But we find out from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that there came a point when Jesus could carry it no longer by himself, and Simon of Cyrene had to step in. John doesn't include that. It doesn't matter that John doesn't include that. Remember, John's focus is somewhat different. It's not corrective. He's not saying Matthew, Mark and Luke are wrong when they, they say that Simon of Cyrene got involved. Not like that at all. Okay. And I say that because there are other things that are different in John's narrative in the way that John tells a story than Matthew, Mark and Luke tell the story. And it's perfectly fine. I cannot stress that enough. Okay. Now, Continuing, verse 19, after you would think that the mocking had finished, the beatings, the the the, the, the 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 purple robe, the crown of thorns, whether it's mocking or not, we find out from verse 19 that Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write, The King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now, why did he write this? I think part of this has to do with with the the prophecy concerning Jesus's suffering, though not specifically is it because you know the Lord worked in Pilate um so that truth was produced, whether Pilate realized it or not, I think that's part of this, I think more along the lines of indictment, not indictment against Jesus, but indictment against Pilate, indictment against the Jews. Because though they denied this, and they might have used that term derisively, that he's the king of the Jews. Yeah, look at him. He was. And he is the king of kings and lord of lords over all peoples, for all times. Another simple explanation for why Pilate would do this might be because of his hatred for the Jews. Maybe Pilate did this as a warning, not only to Jews that would have an uprising within Judaism, But Pilate might have been sending a message to all Jews everywhere that, hey, this guy claims to be your king. Look at what happens when you step out of line. Again, I don't know. All I know is that the chief priests of the Jews protested. They had a problem with it. And Pilate's response, as we read, is what I have written, I have written. And it's left at that. Verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So, This is what the soldiers did. My friends, there's a portion here that we should point out. I I think that as I've been going through, I've tried to be as forthcoming as possible about what the crucifixion entailed. Especially, I think it was Thursday, where we talked about the flogging, how Jesus was scourged, right? And I didn't spare details then. I'm not going to spare details now. The idea that Jesus was wrapped in some loincloth as he was crucified, it's just false. He was naked. He was stark naked and hung up for all the world to see. Like a lamb taken to sacrifice, nothing to hide him. This is one of those points in the Bible that I think we should try to grasp. We should try to pull our attention away from the fact that we've heard this, that we know these things, that we've read the story, that we might have seen movies about this. And we need to come back to the fact that this is God, the son. Rewinding all the way back to chapter one. This is the word who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. This is God, the son, that nothing exists that wasn't created through him. And yet, though everything was created through him, he would be hung on a tree. This is one of those things that we can dwell on it and should dwell on it again and again and again and come back with the conviction again of our Lord's great love. For it was only in his love that he did these things. Again, dividing his garments, turning Jesus into a game. The one who had the power to snap his fingers. He wouldn't even have to snap his fingers. Everything was created with a word. He could have spoken and consumed. And yet, he remained faithful. Verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, with this comment, I'm going to stop because I don't want to get into the next section. And I know we're only 14 minutes in. But I want to be clear about something. This marks the first of Jesus' statements on the cross, right? And, And there are other statements, and we're not going to get into them, okay, into all of them, because this is a study on John. It's not Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're not going to go through everything that Jesus said from the cross, all of his sayings. But we need to be careful here. You know, what some have done with this is they've turned this into some theological premise for the veneration of Mary, for worshiping Mary or elevating Mary to to, to ultra-sainthood, that sort of thing, mother of the church, so on and so forth. And and I'm not going to pull any punches. The Roman Catholics have done this. They take this language, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. As some sort of statement about how, how we should be dedicated to Mary and all that kind of stuff. You know what we see here from Jesus? This is not some profound theological teaching. Whenever Jesus taught serious theology, right, he would always elaborate on it and he would explain what he meant and the implications of it and so on and so forth. What you see here, though he is God the Son in all of his majesty, though he never stops being God, what you see here on display is very much the human Jesus That as he hangs there, beaten beyond human recognition, as he hangs there naked in front of his own mother, in front of all the people who hate him, with that sign, King of the Jews, above his head, Jesus looks down and he sees his mother, and he loves her. And it's important to him that she's cared for. You know, Jesus doesn't have a wife. Jesus doesn't have children that need to be looked after. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man had not a place to lay his head. And yet, the very human Jesus, 100% human, sees his mother and wants her to be taken care of. So he says to John, remember when he refers to the disciple whom Jesus loved, John is writing about himself here. And we find out that John not only hears Jesus say this, by the way, John's the only one there, we find out. But not, John not only hears this, but we find out that at that point, he takes Mary into his own home. We can only deduce that Joseph is dead at this point. But we don't know why. We don't know any of the circumstances. But obviously, Joseph is not in the picture because Mary wouldn't have to be taken into John's home if Joseph, her husband, was still alive. But that's all we get. And then we jump towards the end at that point. Now, again, we're going to save this for tomorrow and process this. But y'all, do you see not only the power of Jesus being in control, not only the submission where Jesus submits to this, but do you see the humanity? It is absolutely crucial that we do, that we appreciate that Jesus was one of us. And that's crucial, not only in terms of our appreciating what he faced, but it is crucial in understanding what this accomplished. For you see, if at any moment in this, Jesus stopped being fully human, the moment that Jesus stopped being fully human is the moment that he stopped representing you and me as he hung on that cross, you see? And so Jesus submitted himself. Jesus kept on going. Jesus remained faithful. The calling for us in light of this, as I said yesterday, is to be faithful to him. To appreciate what he faced for me, for you, for all those who believe, for you especially. Let the poignancy of this echo in your brains today. That this is what our Lord endured. And he would do it again for you. If you know him. Live in light of that. If you don't know him, realize what sacrifice he made in order to be able to save you from your sins. Place your faith in him alone. Let's pray. Our Father, as we are in this ever so poignant section of your word, the pinnacle, the apex of your son's ministry as he hung there on the cross, Let us see him for who he is, but let us see ourselves for who we are. Convict and work in our hearts, and we pray it in Jesus's name. Amen. Well, let me thank you all for being a part of this time. Lord willing, we will be back tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. I see Becky. Actually, the two Beckys and Elizabeth and Wayne, thank you all so much for being a part of this time. If anybody else commented, my screen is stuck and I can't see it. Um, Nevertheless, thank you so much for being here. Lord willing, we'll see you soon. On this, have a wonderful Tuesday.